Well, good to see you guys. Good to be with you. Thanks for being here on week four of our Wednesday night series, um, going through this um, series on world religions in seven sentences. One quick announcement that I want to make before we start is if, uh, especially if you're a TSM parent, you have, you have a student who's in our TSM, they're going through a relationships and dating series right now. That sounds horrible to be a part of that. Uh, I am so glad, I am so glad that my kids have been involved in a church whose TSM leaders aren't afraid to talk about really uncomfortable things and, and to really press in on kids and say, this is, this, is the, this is the beautiful offer that God is giving you in relationships and in dating and what you can have. And here are some really significant pitfalls, and you need to be aware of those because you need to be wise. And so one of the things that um, Pastor j has done is he's created these little cards. I think they're in the back, maybe on the back of the sound booth back there. And these are car questions which give parents a, a help on the way home to have more than this, how is group tonight? Because you know the answer, right? Fine. And then you're like, how fine was it? <clears throat> um, this kind of allows you to continue the conversation because you kind of know what sorts of things they were talking about and allows you to have some content to go, hey, I heard you guys talked about this sort of thing. Tell me about that. You know what I mean? So great opportunity. Please make use of those. Pastor j is going to be preparing those every single week during this relationship and dating series. So um, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll make use of those if you've got kids in there. <clears throat> in your bulletin, there are, um, each week I'm going to try to provide some resources for the particular world religion or worldview that we're looking at. Uh, those will probably be different each and every week. This week I gave you, I think, four different ones on there. Michael Brown's uh, five-volume books, very accessible to anyone. <clears throat> uh, Michael Brown is a gentleman who is ethnically Jewish. He's a follower of Jesus, bright guy. His website is the one that's right below there, the line of fire. Great resources from him. Um, Larry Hurtado is a, a New Testament scholar. This book's a little bit more scholarly. Um, one God, One Lord, Early Christian Devotion to Ancient uh, Jewish Monotheism. And then the fourth one I gave you, this is from a, uh, it's a scholarly book. Um, Alan Siegel was a professor, he's a, he's a Jewish professor, was a Jewish professor, I think he passed away in like 2011. And he writes this book about some of the ideas that we're going to be really more so getting into next week and demonstrates, yeah, this theology that we're going to look at, which actually is about a Godhead, meaning plurality of gods, yeah, Jews really did believe that um, early on um, until they didn't, until they declared a heresy. And, you know, kind of here's, here's where it came from. So we're going to walk through some of that as well. So anyway, those are some resources. If you have any Jewish friends, that fourth book can be one that you can give it's not, an, it's not a Christian apologetic, but it's to plant some seeds of, you know, these Christian claims aren't that far off from your Old Testament, from your Hebrew Bible. So, um, Judaism. Before we jump into the, the um, sentence, you know, I've, we've been framing this around um, Dr. Doug Grotice's book, which he, he brilliantly titled World Religions in, in Seven Sentences, how we can kind of use 
a, um, a core idea, a bumper sticker almost, and then, and then look through it like a window into this faith and, and kind of get an understanding of what is this particular worldview? What do they hold to? How can I understand them better? Before we do that, I want to say, as I've mentioned before, any one of these worldviews that we talk about, it's not monolithic. You know what I mean by that? Meaning like they all agree on the exact same thing and they're, they're all the same stripe. <laughs> um, there are different sects. There are different groups. There are different, whatever you want to call them, denominations or whatever it might be. And that's no different with Judaism as well. <clears throat> um, Judaism has has factions. I mean, you go. Let's let's go all the way back to the divided monarchy. You know what I'm talking about? There, you've got King David, his son Solomon takes over. Remember, after Solomon dies, Solomon has been so um, tight as a as a leader um, that his people kind of rebel, and so it's it's supposed to go to to his son. Um, Rehoboam, but you've got someone who steps up and says, I'll be a better leader than he will. He's going to be even worse than his dad. And so the whole northern 10 tribes are like, let's go with the guy who's going to make our life better. So the northern 10 tribes recede sort of from the union. This was like almost, there was no actual war, but there's a, we're going to create two nations. And so we have the north Israel and the south Judah. And even at that time, you have, especially in the north, during the divided monarchy, uh, because they're, they don't have the temple anymore. That's down south. And the king doesn't really want them going down there because then they start paying taxes and they start being drawn back to the south. So he sets up his own areas of worship and he becomes greatly influenced by the neighbor which worships Baal. And so before very long, you have northern Israelite worship infused with the worship of their neighbor, Baal. And you know the story real well. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? You remember this? And it's the standoff, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. They're in Israel. These guys are working for an Israelite king, 400 prophets of Baal. So it has already morphed in that particular time. In fact, you, you probably know this language right here. Uh, this, is, this will be on the screens. Exodus, um, oops, sorry. Here we go. First Kings, First Kings chapter 19, God asks Elijah. Elijah has gone up against, Elijah is faithful. He's trying to maintain orthodoxy. He's gone up against these other ones. Elijah, what are you doing here? And he said, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, he says. He's in the northern tribe. They have thrown down your altars, they have killed your prophets by the sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek to take my life and take it away. Now, what we find out a little bit later on is Yahweh goes, not so fast, don't worry, I've, I've already got 7,000 others who have not bent the knee, they have not kissed him, that is Baal. So you're not alone, but it shows you there are already different sects. So what the Hebrew prophets are doing is they're providing the minority report of what it means to worship Yahweh in a, in a context where, man, there are different sects going different directions and um, they're 
uh, mixing their particular Christian faith. Let's go to the New Testament. You guys, if you've read the Gospels, who are some of the religious groups? Think about some of those. You've got Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, you have the zealots, the insurrectionists, right? Uh, Josephus tells us about the Essenes, the group who sort of clustered themselves the way they went out into the desert and lived their own life there. You've got factions all the way, all along. And when we drop in at these moments, we see these factions that it's, it's not this monolithic thing. You go to modern Judaism today, what, what was left after the destruction of the temple and some of the great wars was sort of rabbinic Judaism was all that was left. All the other ones died out. <laughs> rabbinic Judaism remained. But what we have today as a result of rabbinic Judaism is fractured. They would like to call it branches or streams. And so the three major ones today are reformed, conservative, and orthodox are sort of the three broad umbrellas, but there are many others. There's ultra-Orthodox, and then there's subsets of those, yeshivish, open-Orthodox, Reconstructionist Judaism, Jewish renewal, humanistic Judaism, on and on and on. There are different sects and groups. If you're interested in going, I would kind of like to know what those are and that sort of thing, there's a, there's a website that you can go to. It's very easy to navigate. It's called My Jewish Learning. MyJewishLearning.com. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm not telling you all the information there is great, <laughs> but MyJewishLearning.com does have a page called Jewish Denominations, and it gives like one paragraph for all these. And you can kind of go, okay. So if you're interested, maybe you know someone there, Reformed, <clears throat> um, and so you kind of, ah, I want to know what that is. Well, this might be a good place to kind of start with that particular endeavor. So, seven sentences. Last week we looked at atheism, and it was Nietzsche's claim, God is dead. And we looked at the consequences of having that at the core of your philosophy, of your worldview, the fallout. The, the sentence that we're going to be using for Judaism is, I am who I am. I am who I am. Let me give you a little bit of a historical context. We're going to read that particular passage, but just kind of give you some context before we jump into it. Moses, who this statement is uh, said to, he's in a line of people chosen by God, starting way back with Abram in chapter 12. We talked a little bit about that week one and week two, to make known to the nations the true God, the most high God, and to bless them with these covenants, that, that God would make covenants with people along the way. And while God's people at one point were under Egyptian bondage, Moses found favor with God, and as a little infant, he was saved from being thrown into the Nile and being killed. And God actually places him in Pharaoh's house, the very one who was trying to kill him and the rest of his generation. He grows up there, but after Moses' failed attempt to take justice into his own hand, he kills uh, an Egyptian who's, an abu who's abusing one of his fellow Israelites. He, he's on the lamb, and he has to run out into the desert. And, and for 40 years, he's in long exile 
out there. And then something strange happened. (laughs) He has this encounter which involves a fire, a voice, a conversation, and a name. And it's on top of a mountain. He encounters a fire, a voice, a conversation, and a name. Moses is tending his, his flocks at Mount Horeb. He saw a burning bush that wasn't being consumed. So it has some other energy, is the point, than the actual bush itself to keep it going. Something's odd. Something is not right with this. And he hears a voice call his name and claim that he had heard the cries of Moses' people, the ones that Moses tried to help 40 years ago. He's like, yeah, I've heard it. I'm here to help. And after God declares his intentions, I'm going to save them, and I'm going to use you to do it, Moses says, I need one more bit of information. I just, I need one more thing. And he dares to ask this question in this sort of bizarre situation. Let's go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. And this should be up on the screen. Here we go. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, really, who's that? What's his name? What do I say? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. Now, anytime you're reading an English translation and you see all capitals, but in small, L-O-R-D, that's, um, that lets the English reader know, oh, that's the divine name, Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H or Y-A-H-W-E-H. That's the divine name every time you see that. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, of Isaac and of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name, forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, before discussing some of the meanings of this I am who I am, it can be translated, um, I I will be who I will be, this I am name here, I want us to say a word about what it tells us about the religious ultimate. Do you remember last week we said one way to like... um, Assess a religion is to say, how do they answer three questions? You remember them? What's the religious ultimate? What's the human problem? What's the human solution? If you answer those questions, it'll give you a pretty good sense of how they're approaching life, their worldview, that sort of thing. Do you remember that? You tracking with me? Okay. What's the religious ultimate? Like, what's the placeholder? <clears throat> what's the human problem? What's the human solution? This Uh, self-name that Yahweh says tells us something about what do the Hebrews believe based on what God has said about the religious ultimate. Um, If you remember last week, we looked at the idea of, okay, within atheism, the religious ultimate is material, just stuff. Well, if, 
if we're at the top of that evolutionary heap of stuff, we sort of step into that place and then we sort of become the measure of all things. But look at what we learn first about the religious ultimate according to Judaism. First, God is, now again, you might be kind of going like, duh, just stick with me. First, God um, initiates a rational conversation with Moses by calling his name. So yes, it's, it's, it's supernatural. There's the burning bush thing. But God spoke to Moses in discernible language that Moses could understand and to which he could respond with his own words. And you might think that's so profound, Brent. That's the most profound thing I've ever heard you say. No, no. Um, Jews and Christians take this for granted. You and I take this for granted, but you shouldn't. Let me, let me read you a passage from uh, Dr. Doug Groteis from his book that we're, we're, we're using there. He, he, he writes this. When we consider Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism, we're going to get to those. These are Eastern religions. This would be true of New Age, any sort of pantheistic worldview. When we consider those, we find that the ultimate reality, that's our category of religious ultimate, it's not a person who speaks truth but an ineffable, uh, that means like no words can work, an ineffable wordless dimension that can supposedly be experienced only through personal enlightenment, which is an altered state of consciousness. Do you get the difference there? If you speak to someone in one of these worldviews, they're going to say, you want to know what the ultimate is? You want to come in contact with the divine? No words work. Reason doesn't apply. Logic won't get you there. You have to have this mystical experience, which, of course, ends up being subjective. <laughs> and then can you tell other people about it? Well, no, because words don't. Apply. So while the Judeo-Christian worldview is going, is going to have, now think about this, we put at the center of our religious ultimate. What is at the center of God? Word. Logos. We get our word logic from that. The center of our religious ultimate is um, reason. Whereas in the Eastern worldviews, reason, logic, word, all that stuff, that actually becomes an inhibitor to you experiencing the religious ultimate. Um, and again, we'll get to some of these encounters. I remember one time doing an interview with one of the, um, at that time, there, there was a uh, uh, Buddhist, I think it's still there, Buddhist University in Boulder. And I remember doing an interview. This was part of my, I was taking a class in other religions and I had to go find someone who was a religious authority and having here. And I'm asking all these questions of like, well, what about this? And you know, I mean, do you see a problem with this? Because I remember one point she, she, she was just exhausted and she said, don't you see you're running in the opposite direction from, she didn't say ultimate reality, but that's you know, what she was meaning. You know, Nirvana, you won't get there through answers, through reason, through uh, uh, a pursuit of truth. That will get you stuck 
in the wheel of reincarnation, it keeps you here. This reality that we have a God who, when he reveals himself, he uses Moses' vernacular. He calls his name. He speaks in ways that Moses can understand. He has a two-way dialogue with the shepherd kid. Well, he was a kid. He's an old man now. He grew up in Pharaoh's court. That's amazing. That is utterly amazing and utterly different from so many of the world religions. I want you to think about names for a second. Um, Your parents probably gave you your names. If you had kids, you probably gave them their names. If, if If you bought a pet, you probably thought of a good name. What's a great name that I can call my pet? Names are chosen for people for a lot of reasons, right? We like the sound of it. Um, or, or maybe a family member had that name, or, or maybe it's just the meaning of it. Virtue names like, like hope, right? Or other different virtues. I remember when we named our daughter Serena, we were in the hospital and um, we didn't have a middle name yet. And the, the, I think it was the nurse who, who kept coming in and there were problems with the delivery. And she kept saying, well, we, we'll just have faith. We'll just have faith this works out. We're having faith that this will work out. And so we're like, let's call her middle name Faith. <laughs> we oftentimes grab onto those virtue names of something meaningful is where the name comes from. Um, Adam is told with all the animals, what? I want you to name them. You're to give them names. Their, their identity, here's the point, their identity is to be understood in relationship to you. That's the whole concept of naming someone else. I remember when we were having kids, I, I would spend hours going through like, how can a middle school kid make fun of this name? Like that was my biggest concern. It's just like, does this rhyme with anything like a part of the body or something horrible? Because I want to save my child from just hell in middle school. <clears throat> but we think of all of these different things. And sometimes, and your name was given to you unless you changed it. <clears throat> Later on, in scripture, God sometimes changes people's name. Abram becomes Abraham. He changes uh, Cephas' name to Peter. Numerous times this happened, oftentimes because of a calling, something that he's, he's wanting you to lean into. He's wanting something for your life. Here's the point. We come into the world as named by another. That's your reality. You come into this world as named by another. Why is that a big deal? Here's the great contrast of Yahweh. The God of the Jews was named not by another, but by himself. Uh, John Piper, I, I, I think, puts this beautifully. He writes this, And when he names himself, we may be sure that the name is packed with who he is and what he intends to do. God does not choose names for himself at random, say for the sound or for an ancestor or to avoid embarrassing nicknames. He chooses names for the sake of revealing things about himself that will deepen our love for him and enlarge our admiration and strength of him. 
It's interesting, God has tons of names in the Hebrew Bible. All of them save one are his relationship to us. He's, he's the creator of what? Of us. So the name only makes sense in light of us. He's our sustainer, right? He's the God who heals. He's the God who provides. He's the God who, so many different names. All of those names though are only understood in relationship to you and to me. This name right here is completely different than that. This is the only name that is unique in that sense. And it captures the essence of his supreme being. So in Exodus 3.14, when he answers, I am who I am, it's utterly unlike the answers that we receive from human beings. If I were to ask you, who are you? Well, you might give me your name, again, that you came into this world having received. Um, you, you might tell me some um, contingent aspect of you, a job you have, uh, who you're married to, you're a son of someone or a daughter of someone or you're a sibling of someone. You might mention all of these different things. See, God's answer is only about himself, in, through, of, and by himself. The point is this, of, of this name is there is nothing beyond and there's nothing behind Yahweh through which to explain him. He is self-existent. His existence doesn't lean on anything else or depending on anything outside of himself for his existence. Let me, I want to show you another verse here that if we can put up on the screen. Um, Psalm chapter 102, the psalmist writes this, of old, he's saying to God, the creator, of old you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. You get the contrast there? They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away, but you are the same and your years have no end. Do you see the contrast that the psalmist is drawing the reader to? Everything else that exists is to be contrasted with the one who has no beginning, relies on nothing. And because God is complete in himself, many things follow from that reality in relationship to you, okay? The fact that you serve a God who's like this, just think about a couple things that um, you can be sure of. Uh, number one, he will never exploit you. Do you know why someone exploits someone? Because they need something from them. I'll exploit you if you have something I need and I don't have it. <laughs> That's how exploitation happens. You can be sure this God will never exploit you because there's nothing you have that he is in need of. Secondly, I, I would say another observation is you can be certain that he will fulfill all of his promises because his promise, his, his word, it's based on his name. And he says, my name is secure. It never changes. That's what <clears throat> one more verse up here um, 
So, uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, he writes this, have you not known, have you not heard Yahweh, there's the divine name given to Moses, Yahweh, he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. See, that's the thing of like he, he changing. <laughs> he doesn't need anything. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding, it's unsearchable. So God's revelation of himself as I am who I am, it's not just, the, this isn't just the beginning of the Jewish story. As we said earlier, this goes way, way back. And Yahweh wants Moses to know, I'm not starting with you. It began much earlier with covenants. And just like Moses, Abraham had, had this verbally communicated with him which serves as, as a way to correct Abraham's life mission. He understands and he trusts God. Do you remember Genesis 15, 16? It's not up on the screen, but I'll just read it to you. He had this encounter with this intelligible, rational, reasonable God. Supernatural, but it's rational, it's coherent. And we're told Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. The sentence that we get from the burning bush here, it's important because it's the first time God reveals his essential name and his essential nature. Uh, let me go to, this should be up on the screen here, Exodus chapter 6, just verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> this, is, this is kind of an interesting thing. It says, um, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am, here's the divine name, I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, this is my first time on the scene, to Isaac and to Jacob as all as God Almighty. That's what they knew of me. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, Moses, you're getting more about who I am. This is the reason why Moses, by most Jews, he's considered the greatest prophet because the greatest revelation is, means the greatest prophet if God has revealed the most to you. And so God is expanding this self-revelation as he gives to Israel, and that grows. And then what's interesting in, in verse 4 um, if we can get that back up one more time real quickly here. God ties that to verse four. It says, um, I also established my covenant with them. So he's tying to what I gave you, this divine name. You're supposed to, do, you're supposed to connect it with what, the covenant that I started with them and the covenants that I'm going to be revealing myself through. And then we see in, in this Hebrew story that this is the way that God will intersect with humanity through covenants. And this is one of the key things to understand. God establishes four, maybe more, but four explicit covenants in the Hebrew Bible. First, we have Noah after the flood. And as his witness, God uh, makes a unilateral covenant to never destroy the earth again by water. And then he says that rainbow that you see every time it rains, that should be a symbol to you that, lets, that reminds you, I won't do that again. Second covenant, that one was uh, Genesis 9. Um, 
And then the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God calls him to leave his ancestral homeland, go to a new land, and he promises, I'm gonna bless you, Abraham, in the, in the short term. Ultimately, I'm gonna bless the nations, the ones who, as we talked about week one and two, that I have put under judgment and I've divorced and I have assigned them to these other supernatural beings. But eventually my blessing will come back. I, I'm not, they're not dead meat to me. <laughs> I'm not completely done with them. Third covenant is with Moses and then via Moses, all of Israel. God calls, um, finds his people who are trapped in Egypt. And you know, we're told that there was this new Pharaoh uh, who, who did not know Joseph. And so he traps and enslaves the Israelites and God raises up Moses, makes a covenant with him, gives them the law, the Torah, through which they are to follow the way of Yahweh. And then the fourth covenant, final one in the Old Testament, is with David and David's descendants. God makes this fourth covenant, which would prove pivotal in the coming of the Messiah, this Davidic king who would hold this rule forever. And what's interesting is the gods of the ancient world, again, we're looking at Judaism, Yahwehism, the Hebrew faith. What's interesting is the God of Israel, one way in which he is radically different from the ancient uh, gods of the ancient world, is the gods of the ancient world, they, they made agreements with humans, but one thing that was different was um, that God always initiated the covenants. That was one thing that was radically different. It wasn't humans coming and petitioning the gods and saying, can we make a bargain? It was God coming and initiating the covenant. That's partially what's wrong at the Tower of Babel. Humans gather, they build this ziggurat, which is part of a temple complex, and the whole point is we're beckoning God to come down and then we're gonna bargain with him. And what they're saying is we're gonna, we're gonna set sort of the conditions of our relationship. <laughs> and God goes, no, I don't think so. That's not how I work. I initiate it and I'm, you've forgotten. I don't have any needs. There's nothing you can offer me that will entice me. The other gods do. There's nothing you can offer me that will entice me into a relationship. <clears throat> Some of the other great differences that's, that are unique about the Hebrew God and the Hebrew faith, um, ancient Near East creation accounts, the gods created humans to be slaves, almost always. They never created humans to have a relationship with them, ever. That, that is a universal truism. In the ancient accounts, there's lots of creation accounts. They never create humans to have a relationship. They create them to do the things that gods don't want to do. <laughs> the Bible's different. He creates humanity and he says, oh, I want you to partner with me. I want a family business. That's very, very unique about the Jewish faith. Secondly, in the ancient, Near, um, ancient Near East religions, um, Establish relationships with humans, um, or rather, give the uh, role of image of God only to kings, pharaohs, and that sort of thing. The concept that humans are to be 
the image of God, represent God. It's, it's not a universal thing. It's, it's reserved for kings and princes and pharaohs and that sort of thing. The God of the Bible democratizes it. And he says, every single one of you are my imagers. That is utterly unique about the Hebrew faith in the ancient world. <clears throat> we're running a little low on time, so here's what, I'm, here's what I'm gonna do. Um, we're gonna have a part two, okay? Next week will be kind of part two. We'll pick up on more things. Um, here are a couple questions that I want you to be thinking about as, as we get to next week. One of the questions that I want us to ask is, what is the church's relationship to Israel? How are we to understand we have church and we have ethnic Israel? Since the past few years, we have national Israel. How are we to understand the relationship? I don't just mean eschatologically, um, but how are we to understand that dynamic? Number two, one of the big hurdles to engaging Jewish evangelism is accepting this notion of Jesus while remaining monotheists. How do I remain a, if I'm a Jew, how do I remain a monotheist and yet you're saying I should worship Jesus, but I'm called to worship Yahweh? <clears throat> I'll give you a last passage here. This might be something that, um, here's some homework, okay? This week, we're gonna be looking at this particular passage, if we can get this one up on the screen, Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, this was the other verse that I was toying with using as the one sentence <laughs> instead of the one we picked <clears throat> is um, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And then it goes on through the rest of the passage there, but that's the start of the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. <clears throat> and... Um, this is one of the, the bedrock elements. In fact, maybe it's the most bedrock element within the Jewish faith is that there is one God. We do not accept a pantheon of gods as these other nations do. And so doing Jewish evangelism, sharing your faith, have to demonstrate that worshiping Jesus is not incompatible with the Old Testament teaching of the Shema of these other passages. And so we'll look at a number of different passages, and I think you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised at what you find in your Hebrew Bible. There are um, littered throughout the Old Testament. There are all of these passages. They do not clearly teach a Trinitarian concept of God. They do teach and lean toward there is a plurality within this one God. It's a bit obscure, it's a bit unclear, but when Jesus shows up on the scene and the New Testament authors start writing these different things about Jesus, they're not just pulling the stuff out of the ether. They're grabbing these things that they've, they know their Old Testament well, and they're going, oh, that's how they connect. I couldn't quite make sense of that, but that's, that's how they connect. Let me, let me even just go back to, you know, the very, um, our passage here. Um, 
if I were to ask you this question, uh, when, when Moses came to the bush, burning bush, who was in the bush? We read the passage. Who's in the bush? Who? Yahweh? Is that it? Well, let's go back and read. You might have read it and not even thought about it. Uh, Then Moses said uh, to God, if I go to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? Wait a minute, I need to go. Let's hear. Let me go back. The beginning of chapter 3. So I guess we didn't read it here. Here we go. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and who? The angel of the Lord, the Malach Adonai, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Did you ever realize that the angel of the Lord was in the bush? (laughs) He's there. And we're told... Later on, the Lord speaks to him. We're told God speaks to him. Some of these words are kind of thrown about interchangeably. Um, And we're going to get to other passages next week, which are really messy. Which you go, wait a minute, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the angel of the Lord? Is he talking about Yahweh? Is he talking about the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord sometimes shows up and reaches out its hand, his hand. All these different things. And you're supposed to start going, what's going on here? What's happening? How am I supposed to see this? And then when Jesus shows up, you start to go, "Uh, oh, oh, sure. Sure, that kind of makes sense. (laughs) So that's where we're going here this next week. So like I said, I would encourage you, let me give you one other piece of homework. I'm going to give you a passage to read. Genesis 48, 15. This is one of my favorite passages. It's real, it'll really mess with you. <laughs> Genesis 48, 15, and 16. Read that. Next week, we're going to look at. And what I want you to ask yourself this question. This is the passage where Jacob blesses his kids. Jacob's dying. And he gets to Joseph's sons. And they come before him, remember he does this thing with his hands and blesses them. Read, read what's said there and figure out what's, what, what's odd. Something's real odd there. <laughs> so read that passage. Read the um, Shema Deuteronomy 6-4 passage. Be prayerful. Um, and then next week, we're going to kind of dig into this and we'll finish up Judaism. Sound good? Okay. Um, you know, we're... As we mentioned, we're a people who follow a God of covenants, right? He's, he's established that. He's a God who makes covenants with his people. And the final covenant was the one in which he revealed the most, even more than the divine name. If you remember how many times Jesus shows up and he said, Father, I have revealed your name to them. He didn't say, hey, guess what? Yeah, his name's Yahweh. They'd be like, yeah, we know that. No, I've revealed to them your name. How's that? In him, he is the revelation of the name of God. And Jesus gave to us a command after his, right before his death. He said, I want you to remember and proclaim this new and final last covenant that Yahweh God is making 
with his people. And the way we do that is he took this meal and he transformed the elements. And he said, take this bread and take this cup. And I want you to remember and proclaim going forward. Because one day it's all gonna come together. It's all gonna make sense. So you need something to tether you until then. And this is one thing that tethers. Hey, love being with you guys this evening. Thanks for pressing in. Thanks for digging in. Thanks for being careful students of scripture and, and loving it. So have a great rest of your week.